Chapter 89 Al-Fajr The Daybreak By the Daybreak This chapter speaks about the special phenomenon of Fajr, Daybreak, the root meaning of which is associated with splitting open or cleaving apart. Unlike people, God does not take oaths to convince us to believe in the validity of His assertions, but to alert us to the significance and importance of that which he swears by and the following subject. This chapter begins with God taking oaths upon four natural phenomena and then discusses the relevant conclusions. Fajr, daybreak, is prefixed with the definite article El to signify that what is meant is what everyone considers to be the dawn. And the ten nights, historically, Many exegetes have offered various explanations of this phrase, among them the ten nights of Muharram, or of Dhul Hijjah. It is plausible that none of these explanations are correct. Earth is illuminated by moonlight. However, during the moon's waxing and waning phases, our planet is dark, because its observable crescent disappears rather quickly. The five nights at the beginning and end of each month, when the moon is waxing and waning, respectively, comprise a ten-night period when our planet is at its darkest. These nights offer a stark contrast to the following daybreak. And the augmenting and diminishing processes. This verse consists of two words, shafa, to increase, to be coupled with something else, and to be paired with and water to lessen. Water only appears here and in chapter 47 verse 35 to inform us that God is always with us and will never diminish our deeds. These two words highlight the fact that neither day nor night appear instantly or at a specific time. For example, it takes a while for the sun to rise after dawn breaks and night only appears after it sets. In other words, these gradual processes cause change to occur slowly. This verse draws our attention to nature and these specific augmenting and diminishing processes that allow twilight periods and gradual changes of temperature. And the night as it eases away. This verse draws attention to the gradual disappearance of the dark nights, even after the break of day, until enough of the rising sun's light can overwhelm it. The point here is that darkness eventually slips away. History has shown that despotic governments, regardless of the ideology they impose, gradually crumble. Dictators steadily lose their grip on power and the foundations of their tyrannical systems eventually rot away, just as a candle burns itself up. The same is true in nature for it slowly yet surely undergoes a process of continuous and steady transformation. Allegorically speaking, daybreak gradually eases out darkness and allows light to rule, a revolution that turns the world upside down. The Quran uses this analogy to stress that permanency in both nature and human affairs does not exist. A long pitch-black night will slowly give way to the approaching light, 
signified by the dawn. Is there an oath therein for a thoughtful and God-conscious person? After these oaths, God poses a question. Did these oaths contain a message for those who are God-conscious and have subjugated their lower self? And have they understood it? Beginning with the next verse, the narrative shifts from nature to history. Have you not considered how your Lord dealt with the odd? Note that Lord is used here instead of God to highlight that He is this world's supreme authority and manager of the pillared city of Iram. Iram, the capital of the odd tribe, contained many palaces with lofty pillars, the like of which was never made in any land. A city without equal, skilled masons had carved it and its many palaces in the mountain. And Thamud, who carved out the rocks in the valley. The people of Thamud carved stones to build their mansions inside the mountain, the apex of firmness and permanency. It is human nature to be enamored with eternal life. Ironically, a strong earthquake completely destroyed their mansions and left behind nothing but ruins. And Pharaoh of the Many Stakes or Pegs The Pharaoh of Moses' time possessed stakes, autad, plural of wetad. Wetad means nail or peg. A perfect depiction of a mountain, for the latter holds the solid part of earth firmly in its place. Pharaoh owned the pyramids, which outwardly resembled such mountains and pegs. The Quran bears witness to these civilizations as producers of awe-inspiring architecture. In the time of Pharaoh, who would have ever believed that his kingdom would one day crumble, for at that time his opponents were only a multitude of powerless slaves, a humbled and broken community of Israelites. Could the Egyptians who lived at that time and witnessed Pharaoh's power and those magnificent structures imagine that his kingdom, along with all of its pomp and pageantry, would one day be annihilated? Who spread oppression in their lands? These are examples of rebellious civilizations and tribes and multiplied corruption therein. History provides many examples of societies that transgressed all bounds and thus became mired in corruption in terms of not only moral malaise but also of chaotic governing systems. That which is unbalanced, such as dictatorship, generates corruption by allowing the given nation's wealth, power and influence to fall into the hands of those very few members of the elite who constitute the inner circle. This style of governance, which disturbs the nation's balance, clearly violates God's law and order. So your Lord poured upon them a scourge of punishment. This metaphorical statement indicates that these tyrants joined the dustbin of history. For example, the scourge of punishment denotes that they were overwhelmed and stricken with such ferocity that they were completely expunged from the face of the earth. 
This is what happened to the Pharaoh and his army that pursued Moses to the Red Sea. God parted it so that the Israelites could escape and then caused the walls of water to fall upon the pursuing Egyptian soldiers so that they would all drown. Indeed, your Lord is ever watchful over them and lying in wait. What does God lying in wait mean? While he has granted humans freedom, no one can ever exist outside the law and order he established to govern both them and nature. These establish divine laws, balance, and order, all of which are lying in wait for tyrants and oppressors, will force them to face the consequences of their actions. History contains many cases of powerful and unjust despots losing their power over time. Dictators often resort to oppression and think that brute force will prevails, but nothing, not even these seemingly impervious and permanent systems, lasts forever. For the law and order that govern this world, as reflected in the oscillating periods of darkness and light, there have always been, and always will be, dark and bright eras in human history. On numerous occasions, the dark forces of tyranny and oppression have given birth to the dawn of daybreak. The nature of man is such that when his Lord tries him through honor and blessings, he says, My Lord has honored me. An underpinning psychological factor explains this behavior. When God blesses someone with a sharp intelligence and aptitude, artistic talent, or a leadership position, or something else, that person often puffs up with pride and presumes that such blessings and nobility are the result of his or her own merit and ability. However, God makes no secret of the fact that his favors, bounties, and blessings are designed to get such people to reveal their true nature. But when his Lord tries him through restricting his provision, he says, My Lord has abased me. On the other hand, people raise a big hue and cry when God tests them by withdrawing some of his blessings, for it is human nature to assume that their presence signifies his approval and their withdrawal his disapproval. Rather, God tests his servants by increasing or decreasing their sustenance. We assume such things because this is how our society works. But God informs us that he has a completely different view of such things, one that is based on what we do with the blessings that he bestows upon us. Will wealth and power intoxicate us to such a degree that we are unable to help God's creation? If he subjects us to poverty, will we rationalize the trampling of our noble values by selling our honor and integrity along with our religion and conscience, or will we struggle to preserve them? In conclusion, one cannot consider wealth a sign of God's pleasure and closeness, or poverty a reflection of his displeasure and remoteness. Given this, why are societies stratified along economic lines? The subsequent verses address this issue and conclude that people, not God, 
cause this economic disparity. It is not that you do not honor the orphan. Orphans need love and kindness more than anything else, even more than food and clothing, because the loss of parents engenders severe emotional trauma. They should be treated with great affection, caressed and honored, so that the emotional blow can be mitigated to some extent. However, many of the Macans were indifferent to such concerns. Orphans who have to fend for themselves are made to feel unworthy and ashamed. The ensuing deprivation and low self-esteem transform at least some of them into people who will ultimately be a danger both to themselves and their community, and do not encourage each other to feed the poor. You are not motivated to feed the indigent or encourage others to tackle poverty by seeking out realistic long-term solutions. You might occasionally feel the urge, such as during certain auspicious days or if there are leftovers from a big feast. However, these temporary urges do not address the day-in and day-out social problems that can only be solved via a systematic and methodical application of the entire society's political will. The Quran's accusatory tone points the finger at these apathetic and uncompassionate people, regardless of their socio-economic status, who prefer not to be bothered by the plight of orphans and similar social issues and you rapaciously devour the inheritance of orphans. Instead of caring about them, you gobble up their inheritance. This concept of inheritance and heritage can be extended to include a nation's resources that are sometimes plundered by the powerful. Therefore, the stark difference between the two classes is partially the result of people abusing the system and plundering the existing resources. The resultant misery, which is manufactured, is not part of God's divine plan for us. And love wealth with abounding passion. Some people's great love of and obsession with wealth drive them to accumulate for its own sake and for financial status, not because they want to stand on their own two feet. In fact, such people are considered to have diseased souls for they can only find contentment, joy, and happiness in amassing wealth. No, indeed. When earth is pounded to sand, pounding upon pounding. When this crushing happens, whatever humans have amassed will be destroyed. Many people mistakenly think that since earth will be destroyed far in the future, they have the luxury of procrastinating. They are ignorant of the fact that God, who is not bound by man-made concepts of time, will destroy earth whenever he wills to do so. And your Lord comes with the angels, row after row. On that day, the Lord and angels will come in ranks. Note that this is an example of metaphorical language, for God is not bound to a location and thus can neither arrive nor depart. The following example clarifies the point being made here. At the end of a school year, 
teachers are metaphorically waiting in ranks to gauge their students' performance after having invested an enormous amount of time and energy in teaching them. Did they do justice to the teacher's efforts or not? Likewise, God grants us innate abilities and on that day we will be held accountable for everything that God bestowed upon us. This is what is meant by His Lordship. And hell is brought forth on that day, the day the human being will remember. But what good will this remembrance be for him? The verb jia, brought forth, in the passive form, is linked with hell, for on that day we will not be hurled into it, rather it will be brought to us. Quran chapter 104 verse 7 states that the fire will rise over our hearts and overcome us. This is not to say that there is no physical fire, but rather that our idea of punishment differs significantly from that of the Quran, which repeatedly alludes to the fact that the hereafter is beyond human comprehension. Such references are designed to give us just a hint of the true reality and therefore cannot be taken literally. On that day, humans will be awakened and remember such admonitions. But just like a student who starts studying at the end of the semester, this realization will come too late to be of any use. He will say, Oh, I ardently wish I had sent forth good deeds for my real life. On that day, everyone will wish that they had prepared for their real life, hayat, the hereafter. Note that it did not say life in the hereafter, but just life, for one's experiences here are not part of one's real life. Rather, our current life is just a temporary phase during which we are to do that which will profit us in the real life. Truly, what is ephemeral has no value when compared to that which is eternal and everlasting. Our time here is like a single night that a traveller spends in a hotel to relax, rest and get ready to resume the journey the next day. On that day, none will punish as he will punish. Students may feel bad after failing a particular class, but they will have the chance to repeat it next year, pass it and then move forward. Those who destroy their future life due to the grievous mistakes made during this life, will also feel the pangs of anguish, but in an infinitely more intense form, for the loss is dealing with the eternal hereafter. It is not as if one can simply say, I made a mistake and will start over, and none will bind as he will bind. The last four verses approach the subject from a different perspective. O tranquil soul at peace! They tell those who have attained this state of tranquillity. Return to your Lord well pleased with Him and accepted by Him. These two verses inspire hope and provide criterion for success. Telling those at this state of tranquillity that it is time for them to return to their Lord well pleased with Him and having garnered His pleasure and satisfaction. What is the formula for attaining this state, which contains no apprehension, anxiety, 
worry, grief, fear, doubt, and tension. Anyone in this state enjoys the same degree of inner peace regardless of their socioeconomic status. However, this does not mean that they should stop striving to attain a higher standard of living. My point is that such tranquil souls will not be disturbed or feel let down if they fail to attain the same economic status as someone else, or encounter a larger share of adversities than others. These tranquil souls have attained such a high degree of peace and serenity that nothing, absolutely nothing, can disturb their equanimity. The tranquil self is always at peace, regardless of whether it is a dark night, the twilight of the daybreak, or the zenith of high noon. To such advanced souls, the political era or system through which they are living, the intrigues directed against them, or the vicissitudes of life have no effect upon their faith and inner peace, for in such matters they are as unwavering and unshakable as a mountain. Enter the ranks of my servants. So then, be among my true servants. And enter into my paradise. And enter my sacred paradise. Some Shi'i exegetes believe that the last few verses were revealed in honor of Hussein, grandchild of Prophet Muhammad, who was martyred in Karbala. While the Quranic verses were generally not revealed to honor a particular person, we can state with certainty that Imam Hussein is one of the best and most truthful exemplars, a person in whom these divine promises were actualized. This intrepid Imam, who possessed the highest degree of tranquility and self-assuredness, sailed through the most difficult tests victoriously.